0: The goal of a good recruiter is to become their trusted advisor, and if they think that you're trying to sell them anything, or if they think that your interest is more important than their interest, they're not going to open up to you. That's the key to being a good recruiter, is don't sell, because if they think you're selling, you have nothing.
1: Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby. I'm joined today by Harlan Friedman. I'm really excited about this interview because Harlan was recommended strongly by a previous podcast guest, John Schlegel. And here's what John had to say about Harlan. He said, I thought of an individual you should have on your podcast, Harlan Friedman. He has a huge average placement size, consistently bills around a million dollars or more. What I believe would be inspiring about his story is how late in life Harlan started recruiting He shared with me that he was in debt when he entered the search business in 2011, and since then, he's completely changed his financial profile and changed the legacy he'll leave behind for his children. It's an inspiring story of it's never too late. I believe it would intrigue your listeners. From a previous chat with Harlan, I know he specializes in team moves, which is something I'm really excited to learn more about. So let's dive in. Harlan, welcome. Thank you for being here.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you and your listeners.
1: Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. And you and I had a chat previously, which I really enjoyed. So I wish we'd recorded that one, actually, because that was good as well. But um, listen, can you tell your story of how you got into recruiting? Because you started relatively late in your career joining the recruiting business. And uh, it's, I'm, it's really fascinating.
0: Well, I appreciate you saying that. Um, I'm actually 65 years of age. And I got into this business when I was fifty-five, never knowing anything about the industry other than that when I first graduated college, my wife and I, when we were trying to figure out what to do, we started a small company called Escondido Career Planning, a resume service, and we actually did some career planning and resumes while we were both trying to figure out what we wanted to do. So needless to say, that was not a very successful operation. <laughs> But I decided that I had to get a real job, and so I started selling insurance, and I sold insurance for about a year or so, and very candidly, what happened is I went out and was talking to one person, and he says, what do you do for a living? And I said, I sell insurance. The person says to me, I don't want any, and I said, I didn't want to sell you any anyway, and that was the end of my short-lived career selling insurance. <laughs> I, then became ba- I then became a bank manager. And then in banking, I was exposed to an individual who was making a lot of money. And I said to him one day, and I don't know if I should say this on, on the air or not, but I said, you know, you're making all this money, you're driving in a limousine, and you're being exposed to so many different things. You do, do you deal drugs? And he said to me, he says, no, I don't deal drugs. I'm an investment banker. And I said to him specifically, I said, on the stock side? And he goes, no, on the debt side. And I had never heard of a debt investment banker. Needless to say, I was very impressed with that, and I figured out a way to get into the industry, and I became what they call a public finance banker, and I did that for about three years very successfully until the owner of the firm decided that he didn't want to be in the business anymore, and he fired me, so I started my own firm doing uh, public finance banking. I did that very successfully for a while, then all of a sudden when the real estate market crashed... Um, I went from earning middle six figures to zero overnight. Wow. And my wife, who was also very successful, uh, had the same situation because she specialized in workers' compensation. And in California, they did away with workers' compensation rehab. So we both went from earning a very high six figure income to literally $4,000 in one year. So it was, oh what do gosh. you do with yourself? So. Being arrogant and being egotistical, um, I decided I was just going to go ahead and find a job with somebody who's going to pay me a couple hundred thousand dollars a year as a manager or as a sales manager or as a CEO or whatever. And um, 55, it was not easy to do that. I have to be honest, that's probably about 52. So I basically. Played computer games for a while, had a great time, and then realized there was no way I could continue to do this without uh, making some money. So a sad point in our life was a very good friend of ours. um, Husband passed away, and I was at a funeral. And at the funeral, I was talking to his sister-in-law, and I said, you know, I've been trying to find a job. I've done everything possible that I can do. Um, Do you have any suggestions? Because she's a very successful executive recruiter. And I figured, if anything, she could place me. So we started talking for a while. And then she said, you know, you've got the personality, which everybody always says. You know, we've all heard about this. You like people. You like this. You like that. Why don't you become a recruiter? And I said, what are you talking about? She goes, no, why don't you become a recruiter? And I thought about it. And I went home. And we have a local magazine online, which I'm sure you've heard about, called Craigslist. Oh, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. So I went into Craigslist and I typed in the word recruiter and there was an ad. (laughs) And so I picked up the phone and I called the company up and it was a small company and I'm being interviewed over the phone. And the young lady who interviewed me, I told her what my age was and everything else like that. And she said, you know, we really don't like hiring older people. You know, you've been a serial entrepreneur, um, but let me talk to the owner so she talks to the owner and she does convince the owner to bring me in for an interview so he brings me in for an interview and i'm very straightforward and i said to him okay if you're going to hire me this is what it's going to take and i told him very specifically what i needed financially and everything else like that and i said if you can do this i will do everything you tell me to do and i'm sure he's heard that lots of times and um, he doesn't hire me immediately He says to me, come back for a second interview. So I come back for a second interview. And he's getting nervous. The fact that I have been an entrepreneur and I've owned, you know, numerous self sole employees, companies, I should say. Um, And he finally says, "Okay." he says, what I'll do is I'll make you a deal. If I can find one other person to bring on with you at the same time, I will hire you. He says, let me look around. And he finally finds somebody who was very, very excited about hiring this person. Um, And he says, okay, I'm going to bring you both in. And this was after about three months of waiting. He brings us both in. P.S. within nine months, that person is gone. And I'm on my way to a fantastic career in public finance recruiting. So when I first got in there, he specializes in financial advisors. So Series 7 salespeople, which I know your listeners are very familiar with here in the United States, and that's stockbrokers in essence like that. And I said to him, you know, I'm a specialist in this area called public finance and I really want to recruit in the area of public finance. So he says to me, prove yourself first and then I'll let you do whatever you want to do. I said, okay, that's fair enough. So within the first three months, I was actually able to close three people. And then I went into him and I said, you know, I really want to recruit public finance bankers. And he said to me, you know, you're going to take a substantial cut in your income and i said i'm willing to work on that he had no idea what a public finance banker was never heard of it or anything else like that so the end of the first year i'm, I'm rookie of the year and uh, my career is literally started so it's, it's a long story it's a long answer to uh to your question
1: no it's uh it's amazing because i've never heard that particular story before i think it's unique um so I have one other client who who, who has been on the Paul, uh, podcast. His name's Paul Taff. He also started a similar age, actually, his recruiting career. Um, he'd been a CFO and now you recruit CFOs. So in a similar way, you were a, a public finance uh, investment banker and now you recruit in that field. So um, it's amazing. What do you think, though, has... Like, what's the secret to your success? Why do you think, because you started with someone else and they were the one that the owner was excited about hiring and you were kind of just an add-on like, okay, I may as well train this guy Harlan at the same time and see what he can do. And then that guy fell away and you were still going and you were making President's Club every year. What? Why is that?
0: What do you think? I, I think the number one answer is I was very coachable. Okay. When I was working as an investment banker, there was a gentleman who came in as a shoe salesman and he went into the owner of the company, actually, I'm sorry, the, the sales manager of the company, and he says, I will do whatever you take, tell me to do to become successful in this business. And I had heard this story and I knew him very well. And I saw him come from a shoe salesman to probably one of the top salespeople in the company. And I said to Eric, who actually wound up hiring me, I said the same thing. I said, if you will teach me this business, I will do everything you say. And I am extremely coachable and I won't question you. Um, I'm gonna do it exactly what you tell me to do. And that's exactly what I did. So for that first year, I did exactly what he said. He said, you you need to make 110 phone calls every day. I made 110 phone calls every day. Um, (laughs) I did everything that you're supposed to do. You need to do roll-ups, I did roll-ups. You need to make- Explain uh,
1: roll-ups, Harlan.
0: Rollups ups is when you go through your database and you find a particular position that you're going to be filling, and you find the candidates, and then you start literally put them in a separate database, and then you just start calling one name after another after another. It's basically dialing for dollars in a rote methodology. Um, so I did everything he told me to do, and it worked, um, but I didn't like it, just very candidly. I don't function that way, but I knew I had to do it his way. And once I was able to prove myself, I started my own system. And it's the dedication to my system that I think has made me very successful at this point.
1: Amazing. I love that about being coachable and you were you were humble enough and willing to do it his way to get started and, and learn the ropes. And then once you'd done that, you then were confident enough to create your own system. Uh, makes a lot of sense. What, can you tell me about your own system and, and, and what that
0: entails? Sure. The people I'm calling on, and a, and a lot of people will say this, that they won't take cold calls, but I can tell you for a fact, the individuals that I call do not accept cold calls. I'm calling very high level investment bankers, and I also recruit uh, investment banker uh, attorneys called bond counsels. And they certainly will not take phone calls. So what I realized very early on, I had to develop a way to get to the bond councils and get to the investment bankers. And so I started doing what I considered very, very targeted emails, where I would say specifically, I have been an investment banker in the past. Um, I understand this industry. I know right now that there are opportunities out there. I'm not looking to basically place you or anything else like that. I want to just have conversations. And that's what I did, and I to this day, I still do the exact same thing. But what I do, which is extremely different than probably most people is, you've heard of MPC, most placeable candidates, okay? And you also have heard about contingency and retainer. I came up with my own version of that, and what I call it is opportunistic hiring. So this, is not, a, this is not an MPC situation. What mm-hmm. it is, is I have very specific clients that I represent on a regular basis, where I have contracts in place, where I have the ability to show any candidate anywhere in the United States to any one of these firms at any time. And I know if I do place them, I don't have to worry about getting paid. Um, And because the investment bankers are from all over the United States and the attorneys are from all over the United States, I get to have great conversations on a regular basis. And if I find that I have somebody that's of interest, I will talk to them. I'll interview them for about 45 minutes to an hour. And then if I think there's an opportunity for them, I will share one opportunity and only one opportunity. The reason I do that is a lot of people will basically talk to somebody and immediately send out the resume or immediately will start sending out and getting on the phone and calling everybody. Excuse me. And what I do, again, I think is very different is that I will tell the candidate that you now will have an exclusive relationship with my particular client. My client knows that if I'm bringing a candidate to them, that I am not bringing that candidate to anybody else. So they both know that there's exclusivity between the two of them and that they know that if this works out, they don't have to worry about anybody finding out about this because confidentiality in our industry is paramount. And I would say 85% of the people that I introduced on the first call will usually continue going through the process and finish up. And when somebody gets hired, nobody has any idea that it's coming.
1: Wow, that's really interesting because you do things quite differently. Um, so, if I, in summary, your uh, primary channel for recruiting is email, at least for getting that intern- initial uh, conversation. And but what you're using is what I call the agent scripts you're not pitching a specific job opportunity you're saying look i don't know you i don't know what your career goals are uh i am an expert in this field and i i know what's going on in the market and i've i've done this job myself and like why don't we have a conversation talk about your what what you're looking to do and that way when the right opportunity comes along then i'll be able to um keep you in mind for it and uh you uh concurrent with that you have contracts in place with a number of uh clients how, how many kind of clients do you have in your uh, that i, you I would
0: say i would say right now i have about 10 public finance firms that i'm representing on a regular basis okay. and about 10 10 law firms and Great. every one of them will hire opportunistically at any time in the year got it
1: okay so uh depending on what your candidate tells you that is is their next logical step, or what they're mo- what they're most interested in? You then match them up with where you think is going to be the best, uh, the best opportunity for them.
0: Absolutely correct.
1: Got it. But you only send them to that one firm. That is correct. Interesting. Okay, that is yeah. different because no most recruiters would say, "Well, I've got." You know, these 10 firms that I represent, I'm going to represent you to all 10 and let's see, you know, who's interested and, and take it from there. But you're really, you've got that candidate exclusivity that you're offering to the client saying, look, he's not interviewing anywhere else. He's only interviewing with you. That's interesting. I like that.
0: It's a laser focused approach. Yeah. And because I know this industry so well, each one of my firms have their own culture. Yeah. So it's not that one firm is better than another. It's one firm is a better fit than another. Right. And after talking to somebody and doing what I call my drill down for about 45 minutes, I really get to know my candidates very, very well. Mm-hmm. And I can tell by the words that they use and the conversation and where it's going, what's going to be important for them and what's not. And then I look at what my firms have, you know, and say, okay, yeah, this, this would make sense. Because everybody I'm working with is a revenue producer. Yes. And a revenue producer basically can go anywhere, and so of it's course. really up to me to convince somebody to, A, leave their current situation because there may be something wrong, and B, find the right opportunity. Now, the one thing I will never do is if somebody says to me, I just want to make more money, I won't even work with that person. Mm-hmm. They have to have a solid reason why it makes sense for them to be even look at other opportunities.
1: Totally. Totally agree. Absolutely. We want candidates where money is not their primary motivation for moving, because um, that's so many things can go wrong in that uh, scenario. There has to be you know, more to the story than that, right? Yeah. And um, once they
0: get their first check with taxes, they're making the same amount of money anyway, usually. Right. So right. what I'm trying to do is set them up for their future, and that's the most important thing. Um, I really try to pretend that I'm that candidate. So a lot of people will show empathy towards a candidate. Mm-hmm. I try to become that candidate. And I try to think about, okay, if I'm that candidate, what do I want for my next opportunity? And I do the same thing with my hiring managers. Um, I don't deal with HR. I only deal directly with either the head of capital markets or the head of the uh, bond council groups. So it's a different approach completely that way, I believe.
1: You might remember back in episode 43, I talked to Plam and Ivanov, the executive chairman of iIntro. If you missed it, it's well worth going back into the archives and having a listen. One of the things we talked about was a way for recruiters to shift the conversation with prospects away from fees and make it all about value. iintro has created a tool called the Bad Hire Calculator that you can show to your prospects that proves to them that your recruitment service will save them potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars. When you can do that, the exact fees you charge almost become immaterial because you've proved that you will save the client the most money in the long run. If you'd like to add this tool to your arsenal, you'd be pleased to know that I've partnered with iIntro and they're offering a 25% discount to listeners of the Resilient Recruiter podcast. All you have to do to claim this discount is book a free consultation and mention my name or this podcast. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained, follow the instructions and iIntro will take care of the rest. That's recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained. Tell me about this um, super empathy where you, like, how do you do that? How, when you say I am the candidate or I am the hiring manager, and I think through their, like from their perspective,
0: I, I mean, I get in theory, but how do you actually do that? Because I was an investment banker, mm-hmm. I really know what these people are what they do how they think and what their concerns are yes and i think it's more important to know what their concerns are versus anything else mm-hmm. so if i'm sitting here talking to let's say a managing director of a you know of a large group mm-hmm. i'm going to say to myself okay what would his biggest concern be right now mm-hmm. and that's what i address i address the concerns mm-hmm. it's not that i'm looking for that hot button Anybody can find a hot button. It's really what are the concerns? Why would I take this position? And more importantly, what do I want in that compensation package? Mm. You know, how do I take care of my family? How do I do this? And so I really try to become that particular person. And on the converse, I have to do the same thing as the hiring manager. You know, okay, I'm a hiring manager. I'm running this large department. Why do I want this particular person? What is this particular person going to bring to me that somebody else will not? And then it's negotiating the package. And most people, um, when they're dealing with a hiring manager, they let the hiring manager create the package. We create the package together. Um, And so if if I find that right now it's more important for a client to have a higher payout rather than getting a signing bonus, then we'll go with the higher payout. And again, I have to become that person to be able to make that recommendation. I also do not give anybody an offer unless I know they're going to accept it.
1: Right. I agree 100%. And um, yeah, in fact, I've said those exact words, Harlan. It's a bit like, you know, uh, a trial lawyer shouldn't ask uh, a question to someone on the witness stand unless they know what the answer is going to be, right? You,
0: Absolutely correct. You've already
1: rehearsed this and you know, because you've, yeah. So
0: um, I so agree I 100%. A, I do a financial drill down on that person. Okay. And I go through probably about 20 to 40 questions about their financial package. And I say to them point blank, I said, if I can get you this, are you going mm-hmm. to accept? Right. And if he says to me, no, I'm not ready to do that, I said, okay, I'm not ready to go present an offer because I'm yeah. not going to lose the credibility with my client yeah. and present an offer and have it not accepted.
1: Totally and I, and I could tell you mm-hmm. in 10
0: years, it's happened once where wow. somebody backed out. And it turned out to be for medical reasons. And six months later, he never told me what the reason was, but six months later, he reached out to me, says, can I now get another offer? And I said to him, you know, you, you burnt your bridge. And he goes, well, let me tell you what really happened. And when he did, I got on the phone, I called the client. I said, this is exactly what happened. I now understand it. Can we pick up where we left off? And they actually gave him an offer and he's been there now seven years.
1: Oh, wow, that's awesome great story i like it yeah that's um the whole really going that in depth with both the client and the candidate and you know doing the trial close and all that stuff that's kind of like the lost art of recruiting i think that's so important um so are there any other elements to your system that you've developed harlan
0: um one, obviously not presenting the offer unless I know it's going to be accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing is being extremely disciplined every day when I step into my office. Okay. So I know what I'm going to be doing literally hour by hour. Um, I you know I listened to Michelle Parchman speak and uh, I said, you know, if anything, I can relate to Michelle. And Michelle's also a pinnacle and she works, you know, limited hours and I try to do the same thing as well. But when I'm working, I'm really working. And it's the targeted emails that I think really open up the door. Um, the other thing that I do, which has been very successful is I write a blog. And I write a, I write a blog once a week. I've written about 150 of them. And every week um, I write about what something I've learned the previous week that I can <laughs> share with my listeners and my re- not my, listeners, apologies, my readers. And then at the end of the month, we take a compilation of all the blogs, put them into a newsletter, and then send that out to my entire database. And that has been very successful as well. I also use LinkedIn, and I know a lot of people talk about that. Um, and I do invite people, and uh, I don't just you know, hit the invite button. I actually have a little blurb that I send with them with every invitation. And I believe that definitely increases my acceptance. But I don't try to sell anybody anything. Um, that's the key to being a good recruiter is don't sell. Because if they think you're selling, you have nothing.
1: That is a really interesting perspective. Um, could you elaborate on that? Like when you say don't sell, what do you what do say? Well, they hear, they hear
0: desperation in your voice. And if they think you're desperate, they're not going to open up to you. The goal of a good recruiter is to become what I consider, first of all, I hate the term headhunter. That's just my own personal opinion. I like the word executive recruiter. Mm-hmm. But the goal of a good recruit is to become their trusted advisor. Yeah. And if they think that you're trying to sell them anything, or if they think that your interest is more important than their interest, mm-hmm. they're not going to open up to you. So the more that somebody can open up to you and trust you, mm-hmm. the more you can help them. You have to realize that my average cycle is probably three to four months from start to finish. So this is not a wham, bam, thank you, ma'am environment that I am in. I mean, I'm in a a strict contingency basis, so it is all on my dime, but I'm not gonna rush anybody until I know that they're ready. When I was being trained, I was taught to think about a triangle and you have two bases of the triangle and you have the point. Your goal as an executive recruiter is to get your candidate and your client to come to that apex of the triangle at the same time. Mm -hmm. And if one is below or one is above, you don't really have anything. So it's building that relationship, building that trusted advisor so that they really do tell you what's going on. And of course, I start every conversation with, has anything changed from the last time we spoke? Because you never want to assume that they're in the same position that they were the last time you had a conversation, even if the conversation was 10 minutes ago, because something could have happened that you don't know about. So if you start every conversation with, has anything changed since the last time we spoke, then you'll know where you're at. And you know never assume anything. Um, and just ask open-ended questions, not closed-ended questions. And um, just see where the conversation goes. The other thing I do is I follow the bouncing ball. So when somebody will call me out of the blue, I don't go into that call with any preconceived notions because that could be a candidate calling me. That could be a client calling me. And even if it's a client potentially calling me, a potential client, you don't know if he's calling you because he wants to find a new position. Right. So going into any conversation with any sort of preconceived notions is a major, major mistake in my mind.
1: Absolutely, love it. Hey, here's a quick question for my listeners today. Did you catch my interview with Joel Slenning where he talked about how he scaled his recruiting and staffing firm to $16 million before selling it? It's episode number 53. And if you've not already heard it, I recommend you check it out. The reason I bring it up is that I'm teaming up with Joel to create a mastermind group, especially for owners of seven-figure recruiting, staffing, and search firms who want to scale their business to eight figures. If that describes you, then listen closely because we're offering a free taster session on September 28th, and you're invited to come along. To register, visit recruitmentcoach.com forward slash scale. Again, this is exclusively for owners of fast growing recruitment companies who are already doing a million dollars in net fee income and want to build a business that generates cash flow without you working in the business so that you could sell it someday if you wanted to. Register now at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash scale. There's a few things I wanted to ask you more about. One, let's go back to, you said that you work in a very disciplined way. You know, minute by minute, what you're going to be doing. Could you elaborate on that? Because this, being completely transparent, this is my Achilles heel. This is definitely not the way that I work. I would like to be more like that. So how do you set yourself up to be that focused and productive?
0: Well, first of all, you have to have very good time management skills. Mm -hmm. That's number one. And you have to be extremely disciplined, especially working out of a home. And I've been doing that now for many, many years. You've know, you got the TV, you've got the refrigerator, you've got every possible distraction you could ask for if you let it take advantage of you and you can't.
1: So just to clarify, like, I, um, I'm i not distracted by TV or any of those things. I'm definitely sitting at my desk working. But the question is just how much horsepower you get out of yourself, how focused you can remain, and how productive. Because even just within a work environment with email and different, there's so many things that can distract you within the work. Not Forget about TV and, you know, Netflix and everything else. Even if you are dedicated to working, you can still get distracted and go off course.
0: You you just can't let yourself do it. I know it sounds foolish. I don't know how to tell you how to do it. I (laughs) just have been able to accomplish this. I know when I sit down at my desk, I'm in a working mode. Okay. And so the first thing in the morning, what I'll do is I'll go into my LinkedIn accounts and I'll see who accepted me over the night. Mm -hmm. And then I'll send them that nice introductory. After that, I'll go into my database and I'll just start looking for names that I can add into my database um, on a regular basis. And anybody who goes into my database immediately gets an email. And so nothing goes into my database or no name comes into my computer whatsoever unless they're going to get some sort of communication from me as an introduction. Great. Um, Before, I used to follow up with phone calls. I'll be honest, I don't do that now. Mm-hmm. um i really let the emails speak for themselves mm-hmm. um i do speak to centers of influence every day to find out what's going on in my marketplace mm-hmm. um and who's potentially i should be talking to what companies are potentially looking for new opportunities and i try i would say i try to add about two new clients a year okay and that's about it um that's not to say that I don't get more, but I actively look for about two new clients a year. So I have a hit list of clients that I would like to represent. But you've got to be very careful because I have a policy that if I start, like most other recruiters, if I recruit into the company, I can't recruit out of that company. Right. Of course. So our firms are a limited amount because there aren't that many investment banking firms that specialize in the field of public finance. So yeah. I have to be very judicious on the firms that I choose that I want to recruit from or at or uh, into. Yes. And so I have to do that balancing act. So that's why I'm not on the phone like most recruiters looking for job orders. I don't have job orders. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. It's very, very rare that a firm will call me up and say, okay, Harlan, we're looking for a healthcare banker in North Dakota doing $9.1 million. You know, it just doesn't happen. Right. So it's that opportunistic hiring that allows me to have these great conversations with people. And all over my website and everywhere else and everybody who knows me knows that all I do is opportunistic hiring. So people do call me up and say, hey, you know, I want to chat with you. I've been reading your blogs for a while. You know, you've hit a couple uh, points that I'm interested in. Can we have a conversation? And I will have a conversation with literally anybody who reaches out to me for a minimum of 15 minutes, whether they're in my industry or not, because I really want to try to help people. If I can't help them, I'll always point them to the Pinnacle Society website where they're great recruiters, as you know. Um, if I can't help them, we'll have that 15 minute conversation. Then we'll set up that 45 minute to one hour drill down. And so I probably have during the day, two or three appointments mapped out already on my, uh, outlook for these drill down conversations. So I know that's definitely one thing that's going to happen that day is that hour. And that becomes my main focus for the day is that one hour that I have with that one particular candidate and client. And then, um, that's probably what I do more than anything else. Beautiful.
1: It's interesting because those 15-minute calls with people, even if you can't help them, most recruiters avoid those and because they, you know, they just want to concentrate on working with clients and candidates who they can actually help and make, you know, make placements and, and generate I- income. So what's your philosophy for like, why do you accept calls with individuals who you think realistically you're not going to be able to place them?
0: Okay. So let, let me go ahead and answer this two ways. The first way is I only probably do 10 to 12 placements a year. On, okay, a, good, wow. on, a, on a really, really good year, I'll do 15. Okay. So I'm not necessarily every day looking for that next placement. Mm-hmm. So I have more time than most recruiters, mm-hmm. to be very mm-hmm. candid. Mm-hmm. And I really want to help literally anybody who reaches out to me and anybody who's in our industry I want to talk to. And the reason is they may be a junior analyst today, Mm -hmm. but if I start working with them and helping them and, you know, showing them the ropes, they're going to become that VP and then they're going to pick up the phone and call me. So there are a lot of people that I'll start with and and preparing them to make some sort of move. And I know that won't happen for two to three years, but I've got staying power because I'm not going anywhere.
1: Great philosophy. Love that.
0: And the more I can help people, <clears throat> the more that they can go ahead and potentially open up doors for me. And that brings us into the team concept.
1: Yeah. So I'd, I'd love to segue to that. First, um, I love the idea that you've got a weekly blog and that keeps you front of mind with everyone in your database so they come to know like and trust you they perceive you as the trusted advisor um and then but not
0: but let me interrupt not only yeah. my database though and, and this is a oh. crucial point okay tell me because my linkedins i'm sorry my blogs go out mm-hmm. to all these different groups that i'm a member of so there may be people in these groups that are not in my database Ah. so like there's women in public finance for example i may not have all the women in public finance in my database and so i have you know my my blog is actually circulated to about i think about 10 different groups is that do, do you mean linkedin groups or do you mean like- linkedin groups and, linkedin groups and facebook groups and yeah. uh other business groups that i've i've asked my uh web uh seo um webmaster to submit to
1: Oh, excellent. All right. So you've intentionally sought those out and um, got an arrangement with them so that they, they, they essentially distribute your blog for you as well. Correct. And ta- like it's syndicated basically
0: to, to those groups. Well, I don't do anything. I mean, they accept the blogs because yeah. number one, there's never sales. And yeah. number two, they're all educational. And number right. three, when I write a blog, I try to write it even though I'm writing to public finance bankers. I try to give advice. That anybody can accept and learn from love it
1: that sounds amazing I'd love to, i 'd love i 'm going to dive into your blog actually and check that out so let 's talk about these team moves because this is something i 've only ever come across a couple of people who've actually done this successfully, and it was almost um They just, to be honest, they bumped into the opportunity and and it was serendipitous. It wasn't something that they specialized in. They just took, you know, the opportunity was there and they they made it happen. It was very lucrative, but it was like a one-time thing. And this is something you've done over and over, I believe.
0: That's correct. Um, I've realized a long time ago that I can make as much money working with three or four or five people at the same time as I would with one person or I, the opposite, I should say, excuse me. And it's the same amount of time, same amount of energy and effort. The key to working with teams, it, it's a 100% mindset. So when you're working with teams, you have to be looking for them all the time. It cannot be you just fall into them. That's the first thing. The second thing is you have the ability to create teams. So let's define what a team is. Most people think of a team as six or seven people working at the, exact, at the same firm and doing a lift out. And then they have to worry about covenants not to compete, rating, et cetera, et cetera. When I'm thinking about teams, I'm thinking about putting people together from various different companies, getting them all who will maybe worked together in the past, bringing them back together. So that's one type of team that we do. Another type of team that we work on is the situation where you've got three or four people at one firm, they're not, they're not happy with the platform, or for other reasons, they want to make a move. So you have that environment. Um, but Teams is very, very different. Most people would say, if I'm going to start with a team, I'm going to work with the top person first, which would be the most logical answer.
1: Yeah, that's what I would have assumed.
0: In essence, it's the opposite. Huh. I start with the most junior person so that brings me back to that question that you asked me is why do i talk to everybody the reason i talk to everybody is because i'll end any conversation with a junior banker and i'll say you know the way i can move you successfully is if you have other people that are producing that you'd want to make a move with so now all of a sudden they're thinking well you know what yeah my managing director has not been very happy. Let me reach out to my managing director and let me tell him about this conversation." And, and that has happened s- numerous times where the junior person has opened the door to the senior person. The second thing is you always wanna work with that junior person. So once you have a team engaged, most people again will avoid that junior person. They'll just be dealing with that senior person. And again, I'm gonna say it's the exact opposite. You know the senior person's going to make the move, pretty much. But what you have to be concerned about is that junior person. And the reason is that junior person may decide, you know what, the senior person's leaving. I'm going to stay. I'm going to get all the business. So you want to cultivate that relationship so that junior person thinks they're as valuable to this team move as everybody else's. And so when I make a move, you know, you maybe have two or three managing directors, maybe one or two vice presidents, and a junior person, you want to make sure that those vice presidents go with the senior people, because they're so used to working together, they don't want to be competing against each other. So mindset is number one in teams. Two is logistics. It's very difficult to manage teams unless you really focus in on it. And that's why I said I'll spend a lot of time during the day just talking to people, continuing building that same trusted financial advisor relationship so that I know when the team is ready to move and my client's ready to make that move, we're able to do this successfully.
1: Harlan, how many times have you
0: done this? Well, let's put it this way. I've got a team right now that I just moved uh, about a week ago. I was, I was talking to a potential client And they were asking me to start recruiting for them a junior person. And I started talking to the manager and the owner. And I said, what's your exit strategy? And he goes, honestly, you know, we've thought about selling the company in the past, but it's been quite a while. I said, you know, I've got clients right now that would actually be very interested in taking over your whole company. So I'm in the process. I don't know if that's going to happen or not. And I don't want to make a representation. It is. But that's a 14-person potential team move. Uh, my largest move to date has been nine-person. I had a 19-person team that was literally at the 11th hour and 55th minute, and I lost them. Uh oh, but that's okay. You know, yeah. you learn from the experience. Um, I would say I do numerous two and three-person teams because to me, any per, any team over one is a, is a one person is a team. Um, I tend to do both bond counsel and. Uh, public finance bankers last year I wound up doing more bond councils this year I'm doing more public finance bankers but you have to be looking for them that's really the key for teams um, and I've had a lot of people reach out to me say you know I know you do teams what's the key to it the key is you have to be looking for it you've got to be listening to the conversations and saying, hey can I build a team here and representing to your clients I can bring you teams and that's what works. And it Great. consistently works.
1: So, what you're constantly looking for? It, but what are you, what questions are you asking, and what clues are you listening for that uh, would uh, indicate that this might be a team move situation?
0: The biggest clue is when people say, "I really like working with my current ma- uh, hiring my manager." That's the biggest thing. Is uh, I'm not looking to leave him. And I say, you know, is there any issues that you and your group are facing? And then they'll basically open up to me. Again, this is the junior person usually. Um, And they'll say, you know what? Yeah, you know, we're we're trying to do this one deal and and the platform is just not working right. Or we can't get this approved through credit committee and we're getting really frustrated. Um, You're looking for something like that. You're looking for somebody who says, I really want to stay with the people that I'm at. So that's the first thing. Second of all, you do get cold calls where somebody will call me up and say, hey, you know, Harlan, I, you know, I'm ahead of this particular group. Um, I know you specialize in our area. Do you think you could help us do a group move? So it works both ways. Wow, that's awesome. Um, but again, you have to listen to, and this is a really another key to good recruiting. You have to listen to what is not said versus what is said. So you'll be listening to somebody and you'll say, you know, I'm expecting this guy to say this and he doesn't. That's when a good recruiter will really start picking up on those things and drilling down on that particular area. Because that's the hidden motivation is what was not said. And and this is the same thing with teams. What is not being said, you know, uh, is more important about working with teams. But with teams, you've got to make them all feel as though that they are wanted from the lowest person to the highest person.
1: And when you say junior person, like what are we talking about? Is still, uh, is that an individual contributor or what is the- what Well, is-
0: usually when I consider a junior person, they are a member of the team, but they're not revenue producing. Okay. They may be assisting on the transaction. They yep. may be doing the computer work behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. They may be putting what they, we to call the RFPs, which is requests for proposals. Mm-hmm. But they're all part of working with there. But they're not the one as a quote-unquote rainmaker out there mm-hmm. looking for the business. Got it.
1: And Harlan, logistically, like, how does this unfold? So you have this conversation with – one member of the team and you pick up some of the signals that this could be um, a situation where they they like working together, but they have some frustrations or challenges regarding the overall business. And, you know, I, do you talk to them all together? Do you interview them all separately? Like, what, how does it all sort of come well, together? Well, let,
0: let, let me tell you a story on that. Yeah. So I was working with a very junior individual. And the junior individual did not know I was actually working at the same time with the senior person. Okay. So I'm working with the senior person and I'm also working with the junior person. Obviously, due to confidentiality, I don't tell the senior person I'm talking to the junior person. I don't tell the junior person I'm talking to the senior person. So what I do is I'm having these conversations and I'm realizing that there's definitely something there so i go to the junior person i said you know i've been listening to you i can't go ahead right now and violate your confidentiality i need you to reach out to the senior person and say you're interested in having a conversation and so because of confidentiality is paramount you've got to be very very careful so until you get permission you can't interview the entire team So you work with a junior person who introduces you to the senior person or on the converse, the senior person says, yeah, I want you to start talking to the people on my team. Mm -hmm. But usually what happens is there's usually one spokesperson for a team once everybody knows that there is a team play out there. And then you work specifically with that spokesperson, but asking permission, of course, to say, hey, you know what, can I fill John in on this? Because I think it would be better if it comes from me because I've got to protect you right now because on your own contract, it says you will not recruit anybody out of your own company. So I want to protect you as much as possible. Yes. So let me now become the voice to the junior person, to the other person, et cetera, et cetera. Yes.
1: Amazing. And um – um what like when a team? I understand very well what an individual's motivators might be for seeking their next uh, career opportunity, and we everybody listening knows what those are. But what? How does that differ when a whole team is like? What is a team looking for in their next uh, situation? That um, that you are bringing, you're facilitating for them. They're
0: looking to solve a problem. Okay. That, that's the bottom line. They're looking mm-hmm. to solve a problem that they are very much aware of, whether it's a platform. And by that, I mean, again, we'll, we'll try to speak simplistically for a minute is, you know, they're not getting their deals approved. Okay. Okay. They're not leaving because of financial reasons. Yes. They're looking because there's definitely a void or there could be a change in management. Yes. And in a change in management, they'll say, you know what? I just don't, you know, my team don't want to, we don't want to work with this individual. Can you help us find another situation for us? Right. So that's probably the best answer is to find out what the void is. And again, by being that trusted financial advisor, they're going to tell you what that void is.
1: What do you feel most proud of having accomplished looking back over your, your last 10 years?
0: Well, I'm very dedicated to my family and I felt absolutely terrible when I was in such financial debt. Um, very candidly, I was $300,000 in debt, okay. which is a lot of money. And it's wow. not like I went out and bought brand new toys. It's not like I went out and bought a new house, a new car, an RV, or anything else like that. It was just surviving. Yeah. Um, I would not declare bankruptcy, so I could had to continue to pay my mortgage. Health insurance, when you're self, self-employed, is astronomical.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, the saddest story probably in my life was we were in a store, and my daughter wanted a nightlight. And the nightlight was like six bucks. And I had to say to her, you can't have the night light. You don't need a night light. And in my heart, I knew it was the $6. I just didn't want to spend $6. So I would say my proudest achievement is bringing my family back to the way we were before, knowing that I can do the things that I want to do. And we don't live astronomically or anything else like that, but just living a good middle-class lifestyle and I wasn't able to do that being so far in debt. That was one thing. And I would say the other thing is, since I was never exposed to any other recruiters or anything else, getting involved with the Pinnacle Society has been fantastic as well, to be surrounded by such wonderful people, caring, open-minded, sharing people. Um, That to me was probably the highlight of my career was being accepted by that that organization.
1: Amazing, I love it uh, you touched on, or you, you hinted at, but didn't elaborate on the legal, um, aspect of moving a team. Um, have you ever been in a situation where the company that you're recruiting that team out of lifting that team out of, um, you know, threatened you or, or there was any kind of legal ramifications of that?
0: Um, I have been verbally threatened, but never legally threatened. Okay. Um, We've got to be very, very careful when we're doing any sort of rating. And what, what do you mean by rating? Like rating what's is the... when you go in where people just take from one company to another company. Okay. So you take 20, 30 people out and that's called rating. And then obviously the acquiring firm is thrilled. The firm that's losing the people are devastated. Right. And right, right. so I was involved in one situation, but what we wound up doing is we had the two firms sit down without legal because once legal gets involved it's crazy and yeah. we worked at some sort of revenue sharing for like the first six to 12 months huh. and we were able okay. to resolve it that way um got it everybody in our industry whether you're the hiring manager of one company or another they know each other okay and they're of used course. to losing people back and forth and and you know wells fargo takes from morgan stanley morgan stanley takes from wells fargo and they're all used to that yeah. um but in this situation having the two firms communicate is probably the best answer and to work at some sort of revenue sharing for a certain period of time Um, but using a recruiter does insulate the companies Right. And so that's one of the things that I talk about is that I am, you know, potentially insulating you. I can't tell you legally I am for sure, but I always tell my candidates, you know, don't go talking to anybody else. Don't try to recruit anybody from your company or anything else like that because you are in violation of your own covenants. If that particular person chooses to call me and I move them, that's a different situation. So I'm always very, very careful of that fine line. And I think any one of my clients, if you talk to them, know it's something that I'm always discussing with them so that we know that we have to be very much aware of that.
1: Makes total sense. That's fantastic. And um, listen, I'm so glad we got a chance to do this, Harlan, because your story is, uh, is fascinating and really, really inspiring. So I'm so happy you came on the show. Thank you.
0: Well, I'm honored to be invited and uh, I love listening to your show and you've had some great guests and um, I thought I could share some of my ideas with your guests.
1: Thank you so much, Harlan. It was, uh, it was a pleasure and let's, let's talk again. Okay, thanks again. Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again and I'll see you next time.